This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry that allows you to control and manage your own healthcare and choose any doctor or hospital in the nation. If you're a freedom-loving American looking for contract-free healthcare, call now, 855-585-4237, or go to libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT for more information, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. This is Janet Mefford today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the word of God says it, I believe it. And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Great to be with you again. C.S. Lewis once said, reality is usually something you could not have guessed. That is one of the reasons I believe Christianity. It is a religion you could not have guessed. And this goes along with what many of us have thought when atheists or skeptics say God is a crutch that we've invented. Why would we invent our own sin and need for a savior? Why would we invent hell? In fact, those things have been revealed to us by God himself. He is the one who has determined reality. And from beginning to end, reality is what we find in Christianity. And my next guest has written a great book about it. I am delighted to welcome back to the show Greg Kokel. Greg is founder and president of Stand to Reason and serves as adjunct professor of Christian apologetics at Biola University. His book is called The Story of Reality, How the World Began, How It Ends, and Everything Important That Happens in Between. And Greg, my favorite guest, how are you? It's great to welcome you back. I I was going to say you're my favorite radio interviewer. You know that because I've told you that before. And, you know, this is the very first interview that I'm having on the story of reality. And today is the launch of the book. And I've got my favorite radio interviewer. And you have your favorite guest. I know. I know. What what, what a country, huh? It's a great country. It's a great (laughs) life. Lord, thank you so much. No, I am thrilled that you're here, Greg. I'm honored that you're here to to tell us about this book. I have to say that is a pretty all-encompassing title you have right there. It sounds like it would be like a 25-volume set with everything you've got there and the story of reality. Yes, well, the the key key word there in the subtitle is everything important that happens in between. (laughs) True. And um, what I've tried to focus in on, of course, are the really deep, important, eternal issues. And so that allows me to get most of my comments into less than 200 pages in the book. Terrific. Well, you posed this all-important question right at the outset. What is Christianity? Which seems like a very basic question. Christians should be able to answer that. But what are you getting at there? Well, a lot of Christians are going to say when they respond uh, to that question is, well, Christianity is a, a religion, or maybe they won't, they'll say it's not a religion, it's a relationship, or they might say it's a way to live a fulfilling life and those kinds of things. And I think the, oh, those are all true as far as it goes. But notice that almost all the time when people talk about their Christianity, they're talking about it in a certain sense from the inside out. That is, about their experience with God, their relationship with God, their personal convictions, their own faith. And Jesus actually saw it not first from the inside out, but from the outside in. Mm. He saw the, the things that he taught and the way he characterized the world as a depiction of the way the world actually is. And so in that sense, Christianity is, is not just a relationship with God or with Jesus, or it's not just a religion, or it's not, but it's rather a characterization of the world as it is in itself. And what I'm trying to underscore here and, and to deal with is the problem that people have 
consistently relativizing religion. Well, your truth versus my truth. Uh, But as I say in the book, if the story is not really accurate to reality, it's not any kind of truth at all. So it can never be my truth or your truth, even though we may believe it. It can only be our delusion or our mistake or our error, but it could never be our truth in that sense. Hmm. And so the, 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 the title is meant to underscore the notion that as a follower of Christ, I mean to be telling people the way the world really is. I'm talking about history, not fantasy. I'm talking about facts, not just leaps of faith. Well, and what you're really saying there, which I think is so significant, is the objectivity of Christianity needs to be stressed, not all the time making it my subjective experience as a Christian. Why in the world have we made Christianity overwhelmingly subjective? Certainly there's a subjective element to being a Christian, but why do we emphasize that more sometimes to the detriment of the objectivity objectivity of Christianity? Well, I I think part of it came out of the Jesus movement where I became a Christian back in the 70s, and it was a response to what some people called kind of a dead orthodoxy. So people are going to church and they're sitting in the pews, but that doesn't have any relationship to their daily life. And so to combat that, uh, Christians properly understood that Christianity is a relationship with God. There's a personal element there. But because it was the 60s and then in the 70s, and now we're into the 21st century, that whole thing, that relativistic or the subjectivistic element, our feelings, our experience, became front and center. And so this is the way the whole culture thinks. So when I tell somebody, as I did yesterday, that I've written a book about Christianity and I told a little bit about it, the person I was talking to who I do not think was a Christian at all, was saying to me, wow, good, fine, super, as people usually do when you express that you're a religious person. (laughs) Oh, that's fine for you. They're not saying, wow, you got it, you got reality. They're just saying you've got your religious trip and other people have theirs, and it's good that people have something to hang on to. There's this relativizing impulse in the culture in general. Well, there is. It's all around us. We're drowning in it at all times. But it is important to see the reality that is Christianity, because you're right. Other worldviews try to explain the world, and yet Christianity stands over and against all other worldviews. What would you say, aside from obviously the truth of Christianity, sets us apart as a worldview from other worldviews? Well, you know, my, my, I have a 12-year-old daughter who was baptized as a Christian when she was six, but when she was about eight, she started asking questions. Uh, and she said, Papa, why do we believe God is true? Hmm. And so I'm the apologist. I'm supposed to come up with something <laughs> profound, right? But she's only eight years old at the time. And so I thought about it for a moment, and I suddenly realized, it, well, this is what came to mind. I said, honey, the reason that we believe God is true is because he's the best explanation for the way things are. Huh. Now, just think about that statement for a moment. I realized after I said it that this is really the way I conduct myself as a Christian apologist or casemaker. I think Christianity has tremendous uh, explanatory power. Um, we are able to take the teachings of Christianity and show that this makes sense of the way the world really is. And I talk about some of those themes in the book about the, the problem, something's wrong with the world. You know, everybody knows that. Right. Um, something's wrong with man. 
Everybody knows that too. And but something's beautiful about man at the same time. Um, there's a purpose for our lives. We all know that as well. And how, how do we explain that? If you look at other worldviews, they are not adequate to explain those things in a way that resonates with our deepest intuitions about the world. Christianity does. It explains it. It has tremendous explanatory power, and this is why I think it's so compelling. Uh, to quote C.S. Lewis, he says, uh, it, I, believe in, I believe in Christianity like I believe in the sun, not just because I'm aware of the sun, but by the sun I can see everything else. Great. And I think this puts Christianity head and shoulders above the other world worldviews. Oh, well said. You note that the Christian story began long before Jesus. Many people might point to the birth of Jesus of Nazareth as right. being the starting point of Christianity. How do you explain to a non-Christian, now nope, nope, we have to go way back before Jesus to understand Christianity? Well, when you think about it, if you're going to have a worldview, the worldview is going to have to explain the very foundational things, the most important things. And characteristically, uh, worldviews dealt with four issues, uh, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. In other words, how things began and what is the fundamental nature of everything, what went wrong, fall, how you fix it, redemption, and what things look like when you put the fix in place. And every worldview, even secularist worldviews, humanist worldviews, kind of follow that pattern, even though they wouldn't use maybe the religious language. So if I'm going to talk to an atheist, for example, and and, and, and tell him the story of Christianity, the story of reality, I, I'm going to tell him the best place to start is at the beginning. Hmm. And here's the way our story starts. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. And that becomes a launching point for me to make sense of the rest of the story. Look, if you jump in in the middle, which a lot of people do with Jesus, I mean, you can do that. That's called the one-step method. But it leaves a lot of questions unanswered. And I find that if you start with the two-stepper, that is, you start with God and then go to Jesus, um, you're able to lay a foundation that allows people to see, um, well, that thing I mentioned a moment ago, how this story of reality, the Christian story, is the best explanation for the way things are. Very well said. Well, we're going to go to a break. We'll be back with Greg Kokel, his book, The Story of Reality. Stay with us. We'll be back on Janet Meffer today. With everything going on in our world today, life can seem pretty dismal. We have a pandemic, riots, racial tension, and you might be asking, how can I make any difference? Well, here's one way you can make a huge difference in someone's life, through the ministry of Preborn. Preborn is dedicated to saving babies' lives from abortion through offering free ultrasounds to pregnant women in crisis. And when women in crisis pregnancies see their babies on ultrasound and hear the heartbeat, eight out of 10 times, they'll choose life for their children. Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the USA, and preborn centers are often situated in the highest risk abortion hotspots, competing with Planned Parenthood for babies' lives. The mainstream media doesn't want you to know that Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood, had a racist legacy stemming from her well-documented connections with the eugenics movement. If you want to help make a difference in the midst of chaos, please support preborn. One ultrasound is just $28, and five ultrasounds are $140, saving five babies' lives. 100% of your donors 
donation goes to saving babies' lives. Please call 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. Here's one mom talking about what preborn has meant to her. Hearing the heartbeat made me cry, and it was certain that I was going to keep my baby forever. Uh, she's been such a joy. Her name even means rebirth and sort of being raised up from the ashes. Uh, I now see my daughter and I cannot imagine my life without my happy, lovely, joyful, smart baby. And I'm so grateful. Would you please join with Janet Meffer today and Preborn in the Cause for Life? When you donate, you'll get a picture of an ultrasound along with stories of other babies' lives who you helped to save. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Once again, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. We are back on Janet Mefford today, and I'm delighted to have with me Greg Hochul, founder and president of Stand to Reason, and the author of the brand new book, The Story of Reality. And it is looking at Christianity over and against other worldviews because it is the best explanation for the way things actually are. This is a great approach, Greg. I love the way that you're approaching the truth of Christianity in in kind of a broad-based way. And we were talking about the different stories, how the Christian story differs from other stories, the fact that we need to go back to Genesis 1-1 where it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What do we learn in the early chapters of Genesis that really so clearly lays that foundation for everything else we need to understand about God and his saving power? Right. Uh, the, er, the opening lines of any book, or any movie for that many, a, a, any story, are, are meant to tell you the basics, set the basic stage, introduce you to the characters, tell you what the world is like that you're dealing with. Here our story starts um, not with stuff, but rather a person, God himself. Now it does that for a couple of reasons. One reason is, is because the story is about God. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's not about us. You know, we have the tendency to go to the Bible as Christians and, and think, well, this is about, you know, God's plan for my life, instead of out that really it's about our lives for God's plan. Okay. So it starts with God because he's the, he's the main character. Um, secondly, it identifies, since it says God created the heavens and the earth, notice how it identifies two types of things. God is an invisible, uh, immaterial spirit, but the world he creates includes physical stuff. Mm-hmm. So it turns out that in our world, in our story, the way we understand reality, we have two different kinds of things that are completely at home in our story. We have invisible things, and we have visible things. We have God and a whole bunch of other things that he made that are invisible. Mind, if you will, souls, but you also have physical things as well. Both are at home in our story. Yes. So when we start talking later on down the line about uh, about spirits and demons and heaven and hell and all kinds of other things that are not part of the natural world, people take offense. They say, oh, that's crazy. Well, it's only crazy if you look at it from inside their worldview. <laughs> but if you see it from within our, our worldview, it makes perfect sense. It it's just like if you go to the Lord of the Rings or The Hobbit or Chronicles of Narnia, those are different worlds that run by different rules. 
And so we need to assess the Christian worldview from the world that is presented there. And so that's another thing that we get. Uh, a third thing that we get is we got God making everything else. And that gives us an indication. If you make something, it's yours. <laughs> okay. Uh, in other words, he owns everything, including yeah. us. Right. That's right there in the first line. But you also have, Janet, you have the theme of the whole story that's really captured there. You have, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You have a king that creates a domain, or you have a king and a dom, or a kingdom. Yes. The story is about God's rightful rulership over everything that is his, which is everything. And so that's the foundation that is laid for everything that follows. That's important because if we have the worldview that says I'm the center of my universe in in modern American culture, we like to say whatever is true for me is what works. And I am the, you know, the only person that can really determine what that is. This shifts the focus to say the one who created the heavens and the earth is the one who rules his kingdom. It reminds me of what Romans 9 says about he is the potter and we are the clay. But we don't think that much about that very much these days. There seems to be more of an emphasis on I'm important and it's all about me. Right. And it's actually quite subtle sometimes in the church. And uh, so you go to the church and you hear all the triumphalism and everything's wonderful and everything is great because God made relationship with him wonderful. Well, it turns out there's probably 85 percent of the people in the congregation that are not experiencing that. They are going through difficult times and hard times and they sometimes feel, wow, what's wrong with me? Uh, because I'm not experiencing that, what they term as that kind of a triumphal life. And the reason that they're discouraged is because they don't realize that it's not about them, it's about God, and God has his own purposes, and suffering is a main part of the Christian life. Read the book of First Peter, for goodness sake, it's all about that. Yes. Or First Thessalonians, or Second Thessalonians, or the book of Hebrews. These are all books that were written to suffering Christians. And so if we, if we don't get the perspective from the outset correct, it's going to create a lot of struggle in our Christian life. If we get the, the, our, our dominoes in the right order, so to speak, God first and us second, well, that changes everything. It sure does. So when you come to these questions people will raise about God, which we hear again and again and again, you point out these two obstacles. The world isn't as it should be, which a lot of people say, most people say. And if there were a God and if he really were good and he really were powerful, the world would not be the way it is. Right. When you take the reality of it, what's the response? Well, these are, what I like to tell people is, and this is preeminent in the book, is that the problem of evil, which you've just described, is not foreign to our story. In fact, it is central to our story. The problem starts in chapter 3, and it goes through 66 (laughs) books all the way to the end. Our whole story is about resolving the problem of evil, and our story is not over yet. So what I want people to see is that the problem of evil fits in our story. In our story, it's intelligible because we have good and evil opposing each other. In the atheist materialistic story, the problem of evil is not even intelligible. They have just molecules clashing in the universe. They have dominoes falling. There is no good and evil in the ultimate sense. 
So you can't even make sense of the problem of evil on a materialist view of the world. Christianity, we can make sense of it. That's part of reality. We don't have to deny reality. We say, yeah, we've got a handle on that, and here's how God solves it. That's our story. And this brings up another point, Janet. It's not just the problem of evil that's a stumbling block for people. It's also that Jesus is the only way of salvation. Yes. People don't like that either. That's wildly (laughs) counterintuitive for them politically incorrect. But these two issues are connected. They are, they are joined at the hip, the problem of evil and Jesus being the only way. And when people begin to see their connectedness, and this is what I develop in the book, we realize that this is not a problem that, uh, for Christianity the way some people think it is, the problem of evil and Jesus being the only way. They are really, one is the appropriate answer to the other. It is. That's so well said that the whole story is about resolving the problem of evil. Something else strikes me too, Greg, and I'd, I'd be curious for your response on this. The same people who often object to evil and say there's evil in the world, therefore there couldn't be a God, would be the same people who would demand freedom from being God's puppets. In other words, they want freedom, but they don't want evil. But it was the very freedom that Adam and Eve had that led to the choosing of sin in the first place. So that part of the story is critical as well. Yeah, Janet, that's a very good observation. And a lot of people don't see, especially the ones that are holding that view, that there's an internal contradiction there. Yes, I want God to deal with evil, but not evil my evil. <laughs> Not me, Lord. <laughs> what God messing with me. Yeah. And one thing I point out in the book is that the thing that went wrong with the world was caused by what went wrong with man. That's right. Man broke the world. Right. And man was able to break the world because he was given a valuable liberty by by God that we all consider important. And if we were to if God were to take that liberty away, I mean this is exactly what is being fought now in the culture. Think of the gender issue. It used to be I want the liberty to have the kind of sex that I want to have. Okay, now it's I'm taking the liberty to be the sex I want to be. (laughs) Right, it's crazy. This is a radical autonomy. People love their liberty. But there's a cost that's involved. God does give liberty, but that creates problems. And God's going to have the the final say in the end on that one. That's for sure. So when we talk about another line that you have in the book, I think this is really critical in talking about man and falling into sin. You say in the book, God's goodness made possible a world that could have badness. Right. What does that mean? Well, I think, to put simply, God, God wanted us, I think, there's some speculation here, but I think it's pretty safe. God wanted us to be happy, okay? He wanted us to share in his happiness. But the happiness that God has is because it's based on his goodness, You cannot be happy if you're not good, period. That's the way God made us, all right? But how could we be good in any meaningful sense? God wanted us to learn goodness, to develop virtue over time, and in order to do that, he had to make us the kind of people that could choose goodness over badness, but that also meant that we could choose badness over goodness. So something good that God did, which is making creatures that could develop virtue and share in his goodness and therefore his happiness, um, is the thing that made possible the kind of bad that we see with the problem of evil. It was a good thing that made a bad thing possible, not inevitable, 
but certainly possible. So man's evil is tied actually to a good thing that God did, which is giving us moral freedom. You know, people say, well, if God were really good, he wouldn't let us do evil. Mm. Well, it's just the opposite. It's because he's really good that he gives us that liberty. There's other good things that are at stake in the process, and that's why he did that. Yeah, and as you said before, Greg, it often is the case that people who complain about evil in the world aren't looking in the mirror. They're looking out the window. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) That guy down there really needs to get it. I don't understand why he gets away with that, and she gets away with that, and this government does this. Well, as what was it, Chesterton, who said, what's wrong with the world? I am. Wasn't that Chesterton who said that? Yeah, I think you're right. He was also the one that said there's one thing that uh, one Christian doctrine that's empirically provable and that's the fallenness of man for sure original sin and that's something that any world worldview has to deal with Janet Uh, these two things about human beings one that that human beings are are are, the way I put it are is beautiful hang on a second Greg got to run to a break This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry that allows you to control and manage your own healthcare and choose any doctor or hospital in the nation. If you're a freedom-loving American looking for contract-free healthcare, call now, 855-585-4237, or go to libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT for more information, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. This is Janet Mefford Today, and now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. We are back on Janet Mefford Today, talking about the story of reality, the new book from Greg Kokel from Stand to Reason. It's always a delight to have my favorite guest here with me, talking about the broad, important issues of life. And one of the things you were talking about before we went to the break, Greg, was the concept of original sin and people who struggle with the world being evil, but they don't necessarily want to struggle with their own sin. Doesn't this also confirm the narrative of Christianity, that that's part of our problem. Yes, this is absolutely true. I know I was, I was uh, lecturing at Berkeley a number of years ago to a, a large, uh, of course, non-Christian audience, and uh, I said, there's something I know about every single person in this room that you you know about yourself, but you don't want other people to know, and that is you have a bad self-image. How do I know that? Because everybody does. That is, we look down inside of ourselves, and we see something that we don't like, and that thing is broken is something moral. There's bad in there, okay? Um, and we have a feeling about that, and the feeling that we have about our moral brokenness is, I actually asked the audience, what is the word that we use to describe the feeling um, that we have when we realize that we're morally broken? And they, I used to hear, heard him starting to say it, guilt. Right. And I said, yeah, guilt. Why do we feel guilty? Well, maybe because we are guilty. So this is a universal Christian uh, human experience, I should say, that, that there's something that is wrong. Okay, we all know something is wrong. And yes. this is one reason why people raise the problem of evil. There's something wrong with the world, but it's not just the world. There's something wrong with us. Um, but there's also something else. We are, not, uh, we are not just broken, but we are beautiful. We, we stand above everything else, even though there's a trend now to try to make us mere animals. We actually know better. This is why we, we shouldn't be gassing Jews, but we can gas termites, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> right. We tell people, don't treat each other like animals because we realize we're more than animals. And so these two features of the world, the beauty of man 
and the uniqueness of man and man's brokenness are something that every worldview, if it purports to tell you the truth about reality, has to deal with. Many worldviews ignore those things. Christianity as a worldview uh, meets it head on. Explains why we're beautiful, we're made in the image of God, and that grounds all of our obligations morally towards each other. It grounds all of our rights, whatever rights we think we have, we can only have those because God has given us those rights. Which, by the way, our founders understood, which is why they wrote that in the Declaration of Independence. So we all know that there's something beautiful about us, but we all know that there's something broken. Christianity explains that as well. And that is is that we have fallen from grace, we have rebelled against our sovereign, and now we are criminals in his creation, and we have to deal with that problem. And that's how the story unfolds and brings us to the person of the rescuer, Jesus of Nazareth. Exactly. Now, for a lot of people, they will acknowledge Jesus as a great moral teacher or somebody who really has good things to say about feeding the poor and whatever social justice issue happens to float your boat at any given moment. But Uh fundamentally, Jesus was not a about his teachings, Christianity is about Jesus. That's right. It's a great way of putting it. And as far as the social justice is concerned, um, I get so annoyed at people characterizing Jesus in that way, as this was the summum bonum, the greatest good that Jesus did, that I I decided to start reading through the Gospels and quantifying um, his references to things that might be called social justice. And uh, and I think if I, if, if I were to tell people that you can take out every single thing Jesus ever said about the poor and not compromise his main message one single bit, they would think I was out of my mind. But this is exactly what one of Jesus' closest friends, John the Beloved Disciple, did. You can start at John 1-1, and you can take it all the way to the end of that glorious gospel, and you will not find a single word related to helping the poor or anything akin to social justice. Now, did Jesus care about those things? Yes, he did. But the point I'm making is it wasn't the reason that he came. He came for another reason. And if we reduce him, his work, to those teachings on social justice, we have missed it completely. The story of Jesus or the, was about Jesus, as you pointed out, uh, Janet. He, it was about him. He drew attention to himself. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the living water. I am the bread of life. I am the resurrection of the life and the life. And if he wasn't right on those things, he wasn't a good man and he wasn't a good prophet. As C.S. Lewis points out, Jesus did not leave that option open to us. Well said. So Jesus of Nazareth, who should have been obscure and forgotten in the annals of history, in fact, became the most important man who ever lived. And it was this central claim of Jesus that he and the father were one that angered the Jewish leaders, that he was a blasphemer. They put him to death. Put it all in context for somebody who doesn't understand why did Jesus come? What was his primary objective in God's plan? Well, if you think of the order of the story, I use five words to kind of capture the backbone of the outline. And those five words are God, which we've already talked about, man, which we've talked about, Jesus, cross, resurrection. And here I mean the final resurrection to reward and judgment. So I've got the beginning and the end and the important things that happen in between. When, when God created man to be in friendship with him and man rebelled, this created a huge problem. 
And God could have just judged him just then, just like he did the angels, but he chose not to. Instead, he chose to become, to initiate a rescue operation. And he did that by becoming a man himself, walking among his subjects, serving them, and then giving his life a ransom for the others. Now, what's a ransom? It's a payment in which you buy something. Well, what did Jesus buy? He gave his body to buy other bodies. He gave his life to buy the lives of those who had put their trust in him. And so you, there's kind of a, a, sense, a sensibility to the arithmetic here. Human beings incurred a debt. They rebelled against God. They owed him obedience. They, were, they, they deserved punishment. Jesus pays the debt, takes the punishment, lives the perfect life that man should have done, and it puts him in a unique position, Janet, now to be the sole rescuer of humanity. And that's why Jesus is the only way of salvation. He's the only one who solved the problem. He did. Yet how was one life sufficient to make payment for many lives. I've well, heard that as well. How, how, how come it didn't have to be a one-for-one life trade? Well, if it was you or I doing that, it would be that, a life for a life. But this is one of the reasons in the kind of divine arithmetic why it was so important that it was God who became a man, and it wasn't just some other person who said, I'll die for my friend. Okay. It was because God became a man, there was a, there was a quality to this in the God-man Jesus of Nazareth that was cap- where one man, the God-man, was capable of rescuing for all time all of those who would put their faith and trust in him. I love that. Well, the promised Messiah who takes away the sin of the world is announced by John the Baptist. I'm also intrigued, too, at the other point of it all where Jesus died on the cross but was raised to life for our justification and in fact fulfilled the law on our behalf. What right. about this aspect of the gospel that Jesus fulfilled and obeyed fulfilled the law and obeyed God in a way you and I could never do? Janet, this is really important. I'm glad you brought it up because a lot of times as Christians properly we focus on the death of Christ, but we we don't always realize that the life of Jesus, that is the life he did, the merit he, um, he obtained through his perfect obedience to the Father, is just as important for us as his death. Because his death dealt with the sin, but it doesn't just bring us even with God. We, he not only took our punishment we get his merit. We get his righteousness into our account. This is what justification is. Uh, the Apostle Paul put it this way in Second Corinthians 5. He said, He, the Father, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The Reformers called that the marvelous exchange. And understanding that we can be forgiven is only half of the story. That's the death of Jesus. Understanding that we have Christ's righteousness imputed to us, given to us, added to our bank account, that God sees us in Christ in that way. That's the other half, and that's fabulous. It sure is. Well, we're going to come back with Greg Kokel, the story of reality. Stay with us. We'll return.
Hi, this is Janet Mefford here today with Matt Bellis with Liberty HealthShare, a national nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry. Matt, many people today are confused about their options for covering their healthcare expenses. How is Liberty HealthShare different from insurance? Well, we don't want to be insurance at all. We are called a healthcare sharing ministry. Just meaning that as men and women, we're voluntarily sharing medical bills with one another. But that means that insurance does basically two things that we don't do. One, we don't share risk. We don't try to take risk and spread it out amongst as many people as possible. We are each individually responsible for our own risk. The second thing is that we don't pool our funds. We don't put our money into a big, giant, bureaucratic black hole, and hopefully someday we'll be able to get some money out of that. So those are the two main differences. We don't spread risk, and we don't pool our funds. We're all each individually responsible responsible for our own health care and health care bills, and we share our money whenever we need each other as it pertains to our health care bills. So that's why we're not insurance, and we couldn't be more proud not to be insurance. Why would you say that health care sharing is a great option? Well, it really does set people free within the confines of a community that helps you in times of need. We're here to support each other in a community and help you during those times that are unexpected and unaffordable. But you as the individual have the uh, ability, responsibility, and the freedom to make decisions within your health care that pertains to you and your family. Thanks, Matt. More information about Liberty HealthShare is available at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT, or their phone number is 855-585-4237. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. We're back on Janet Mefford today. I got to tell you, Greg Kokel, I never get tired of hearing the good news. Do you? No matter how many times I hear Jesus paid for my sin and he rose from the dead and he justified me and he gave me his imputed righteousness, I am not in trouble anymore. And even though I'm a sinner, I'm going to go to heaven because of Jesus. It just never gets old. It's it's so rich. And one thing, though, is that sometimes we say those things over and over and it does get a little stale in our minds. And what I was trying to accomplish with the story of reality, which, by the way, people can get at the website, thestoryofreality.com. So it's all laid out there, thestoryofreality.com, Amazon, etc. But how, uh, what, 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 I, what I'm trying to do in the book is to communicate this all in a, in a, a kind of a fresh way. Uh, and that's always a challenge for a writer. How do you take something that's been around for a long time and people have heard so many times in one way that it's a little bit stale in their mind, even though it's wonderful? Hmm. How do I find a way to say it that is refreshing and palatable and easy to pass on to non-Christians, for example? I'm actually hoping a lot of people who are not Christian read this book, or a lot of believers hand the book to them, because I've tried to take these concepts and put them in a very, very accessible way, in a friendly fashion, a genial conversation, as I tell the story of reality, in a way that may make a huge difference on the non-Christian friends of your listeners. Well, I think you've done a very, very excellent 
excellent job of making it a fresh story once again, because, you know, I don't often think of it in terms of Christianity is not just my own worldview. It's the worldview that makes sense of everything around you. You know, things from your mind and your soul and your body and matter and all the questions of the beginning and the end. And you talk about the end, this fifth point that you mentioned in the book, resurrection. What about resurrection is unique in the Christian story? Well, it, I think there's a story there that is a part of that that, that you, a person is not going to invent, all right? And that is that, that there, is a, there are two things that are, everybody lives forever. That's the first thing. Everybody lives forever. Now, that's good news and bad news. Right. The good news is everybody lives forever. What's the bad news? Well, the bad news is everybody lives forever. Uh, because it, it's bad news because for some, they, they, their story doesn't... Um, and they lived happily ever after. At the final judgment, and there will be a final judgment, that is part of the story of reality. Um, Jesus, who came first as a lamb, will be there as a lion and a judge. And he came to distribute life, but at the final judgment, he will distribute death to many people. And uh, one of two things is going to happen. And either perfect mercy, which is uh, forgiveness for everything that you have ever done wrong and God misses nothing, or punishment for everything you've ever done wrong and God misses nothing. You see, this is where justice is finally accomplished. People are shaking their fists at God and say, why don't you do what's right? Do justice. Well, that time will come. But when that time comes, it's not going to be a pretty picture. Because as Lewis points out, when the author walks out on the stage, the play is over. And the time for mercy will be done for those who have not put their trust in God's rescuer. And that's when the final, that's when the problem of evil will finally be resolved. Evildoers will be punished. Those who have repented will be forgiven. And the world will be restored in a magnificent way so that this kind of darkness will never prevail on God's world ever again. And if you put your trust in God's rescuer, you get to participate in the kind of world your heart has always longed for. Well, and going back to the issue of personal autonomy and how much we tend to love it, it has its limits, doesn't it, when you start to talk to non-Christians about it? You want autonomy. You want autonomy sexually. You want autonomy in terms of deciding what you want to do with your life, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But your autonomy can be your undoing as well. Yeah, well, think of it this way. You know, nobody is ever free. And I think this is what Paul's developing in in Romans chapter 6. No one is ever free. You are either a slave to God or you're a slave to your fallen self. Yes. But you're never free. Yes. Uh, Not since Adam, at least. And so if we, our freedom now looks like I'm going to do my own thing, but the thing that is our own thing is destruction. And this is what happens in people's lives when they follow their own nonsense ideas. Destruction. God has a better plan. He does. That's right. And you think of Jesus saying, if the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. That's right. We're free in a different way than people might imagine. But what about the the coming promise, Greg? And I'm, I'm glad that you talk about the end of all things and a judgment is coming and there is a heaven and there is a hell. What about the promise of the resurrection of the dead, meaning our bodies? This is something I have not heard a whole lot of emphasis on in churches over the years that I've been a part of, but is such a matter of hope for the Christian. Uh, The references to the dead in Christ will rise first, and then those who are alive will be caught up together in the clouds. We know that famous reference. Sure, in 1 Thessalonians 4. 1 Thessalonians 4. But what about the resurrection of believers gives you hope? 
Well, you know, right now I'm struggling with some really bad back problems, you know. Oh. I'm 66 and the body's starting to go. I mean, lots of people have it a lot worse than I do, but even if you're, you know, you try to pump iron and you do your exercises, you eat well, sooner or later the body goes. Yes. Uh, that's just part of the fall. And we become more and more aware of how how finite and fallen our bodies are too. And so when our natural state is to have our souls with our bodies. That's the way God wanted it. When we die, our souls are torn from our bodies. And even when we go to glory, after we die and be with the Lord, we are still in a somewhat unnatural state. At the resurrection, God joins us once again with our souls. I mean, our souls with our bodies, so that we are clothed, as Paul put it. We are not naked and we are in the fullest, most satisfying situation that God intended for us. And those bodies will be perfect. And they will have all kinds of what we would consider now to be supernatural qualities. Uh, and it's hard even to describe. Paul stumbles in First, uh, First Corinthians 15, trying to make sense of it, to explain what it's like. It's a mystery. It's beyond us. But it's going to be wonderful, far beyond what we could ask or even think. That's so true. You know, when you talk about the story of reality, foundation being built upon the truth that God is ruler and reigning over his creation, that it's his kingdom. It's a story about God. It's not a story about us. How do you tie that back in at the end of the story? Well, I mentioned the theme of the story being um, the kingdom of God, okay? And that's his rightful rulership over all that is his. When he made everything, everything was just right. It was all the way he wanted it to be, everything working together beautifully. That's what the text means when the story says everything that God made was good, okay? Um, now, of course, since the fall, that's not been the same. It's been, everything's been messed up, of course, and that's what people's complaint is, okay? At the final resurrection, all of that's going to be restored. Um, it's going to be good again. We are going to be naked and unashamed, so to speak, once again. We are going to be in that rightful friendship with our Father and all the rest of those who have put their trust in God's Redeemer. And, you know, it is very difficult, and I talk about this at the end of the book. It's hard to describe what a perfect world is going to be like because we are so used to an imperfect world. But I will say this, that God will be in full reign again. I mean, full practical reign, no rebellion, no sin, no darkness at all. Uh, no night, you know, every tear wiped from every eye, all sin erased and all the effects of sin erased. And not only that, all forgotten. And we will move forward into a wonderful world that God has for us. And the most valuable thing that we have in that world is Him. Yeah. We will be His, and He will be ours. We will have returned from that far-off country and be restored to home. And in a way, that's a, yeah, that's a, a somewhat abstract way of putting it, but it, it's the best I can do. You know, that thing that our hearts have always yearned for will be Hours and uh, the the little glimpses we get in life of these th this transcendent moments, um, we get little tastes of tr of transcendence, and it moves us to tears. And all kinds of things could cause that, but that's just a taste, I think, of what it's going to be like in eternity with God. It's going to be wonderful, and your back's going to be all better, Greg. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Yes, and I'm going to have good eyes finally. I'm looking forward to that too. <laughs> but it is just such a great promise and. And I love how you tie it all together because Christianity
Christianity is not just one choice among many, many religions, but it is the only story of reality because we worship the one living and true God, the ruler and the king over his creation, who in his mercy sent us his son, Jesus Christ, to die and to rise again. And it is the greatest news the world will ever hear. And I highly recommend this wonderful book. It's the story of reality. You said it's the story of reality.com. Also the website, right, Greg? Right. That's right. You can pick it up. And Greg Kokel, always love your work. Greg, STR.org, Stand to Reason, wonderful ministry. And it was just great to talk to you again, Greg. Thank you. Thanks so much. I'm honored to have you be the first interviewer for the book. Ah, means a lot. Thank you so much for being with us, Greg. Really, really appreciate it. God bless you. And thanks for tuning in to Janet Mefford today. JanetMefford.com, our website. We'll see you there.